You're listening to the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that wants pictures of you throwing gang signs on its MySpace page. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So listen up, a-holes. We're going to talk about Iron Man. So, Lonnie, I think that usually we're going to want to start these things with a little bit of the comic book history of the character, right? Because some portions of that history are going to show up in every one of these movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's where this all comes from. So it's good to understand the context of the original stories that launched Iron Man. So what do you have for us as our comic book specialist, our superhero scholar? What can you tell me about the history of Iron Man? I can tell you that some of it is very important to this movie, but the most important parts are actually the parts they threw away. Really? Yes, absolutely. Because Iron Man's origin is very different in some ways and in other ways very similar. We'll talk about it. So Iron Man first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 39, cover dated March 1963, in a story cleverly titled Iron Man is Born. (laughs) We meet Tony Stark and how he came to need life-saving armor in a story that only took up a third of the total issue, which, for you people playing at home who may not have spent their entire lives reading superhero comics, used to be how this worked. You'd (laughs) You'd get 30 to 60 pages and every story in it was 6 to 10 pages long, and that's kind of what you got here. Um, the, The issue is credited to Jack Kirby, Don Heck, Larry Lieber, and of course, Stan Lee. Uh-huh. Now, there are a few things to keep in mind if you revisit this story, especially in light of the movie adaptation. One of my favorite things about the movie is that it is a face turn. Lonnie, okay. I- I'm not sure. Are you familiar with face turn? I, I am not familiar with that term, but I'd love to hear what it, what it means. So I don't know where this started, but I picked it up from professional wrestling. And Okay, in, I like it. In professional wrestling, bad guys are heels. Uh Good guys are faces. And so if you Uh have a heel, a bad guy that turns into a face, a good guy, it's a face turn. Well, that's wonderful. I love that. I'm going to use that for the rest of my life. Thank you. Uh, I did exactly (laughs) the same thing. I was like, well, that's going right into the lexicon. I will never (laughs) not (laughs) talk about face turns and heel turns because it goes the other way, right? When you have good guys turn to bad guys, they're heel turns. So just so in the cover dated 1963 origin story, none of that face turn is present. You have something more like a tragedy, Uh, like Uh like a good man brought low by circumstances. He finds a way to turn his disadvantages into a way to help people, but it makes him an outsider in the process. And you Uh can stop me if you've heard that before, because (laughs) you have. It's the Fantastic Four. It's Spider-Man. It's the X-Men. It's the early Marvel template. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That outsider as hero is a thing that it just keeps cropping up. Okay. Uh, also, just because, you know, sliding time scale of comics, that original story takes place in Vietnam. Right. Not not in the desert, not in sort of Afghanistan. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Now, this is either before the tide of real world public opinion turned hard against Vietnam or it's before Stan Lee realized that it had. Either one is possible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because Tony Stark 
is charming, brilliant, rich, and a super capitalist, and he's making weapons to kill commies, and we are 100% fine with that. There is no oh, conflict of conscience. <laughs> he is not a bad guy. He is not questioning his life choices. Right. Okay. He's yeah. Well, because they're they're communists, and in 1963, I mean, that was Bay of Pigs, right? I mean, yeah. We've just gone through that whole thing. This was when all that counter-communist culture was really ramping up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the thing. There there is no hesitation in Tony Stark to figure out how to turn transistors into a way <laughs> to murder communists oh in God. large numbers. Now, they're a little more <laughs> sanitized about the conversation, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, that's what you guys are talking about. So mm-hmm. uh, also, it probably goes without saying that this story has a not at all progressive view of the Vietnamese people. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. So neither you're not going to get nuanced views of Vietnam or communism in Mm -hmm. this issue. But so committed to the fight against commies was the Marvel Universe that the Red Menace would supply most of Iron Man's memorable villains for decades. Wow. As you can imagine, this hasn't aged well, and it's probably (laughs) one of the reasons the movies struggle to adapt them. Right, sure. But broadly, Tony Stark is dying in captivity, and so with the Mm -hmm. aid of Yinsen, he creates the first Iron Man armor. And keeping in mind that this is a tragedy, that there's a tragic nature to this story, the first armor is not that familiar red and gold. It's a grim cast iron version, not unlike the first one in the movie. It's Mm -hmm. monstrous, and it's monstrous on purpose. In fact, a lot of the narration talks about him being lumbering and terrifying. Oh, wow. And this is not surprising. You will like well, this. Well, because he's, he's in captivity. I mean, he's, he's making this thing, you know, in a cave with a bunch of scraps. Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave with a bunch of scraps. Yes, that is the <laughs> is that movie still consistent reason. in the storytelling? Yes. Right, okay. Well, mm-hmm. pretty much. I mean, that's, that is definitely the movie's reason, and it's a good reason. Mm-hmm. But the metafictional reason is that before Marvel published superheroes... They only or mainly published monster stories. Oh. Like giant monster stories. Uh, sometimes kind of Twilight Zone monster stories. Uh-huh. Uh, the first, the Amazing Fantasy 15, where Spider Man is introduced, we'll talk more about it later. But if you read it now, it reads like a Twilight Zone episode wow. that just happens to have a kid in long underwear in it, you know? <laughs> I, you know, just mm-hmm. saying. Uh, now, so Jack Kirby is the person who created this Iron Man armor. For the cover. And he carried that monster comics ethos forward. He's also responsible for characters like The Thing, Uh who is an even more sort of horrifying outsider type of superhero character. And you're getting that again here in Iron Man. So this was sort of a transitional phase in the comic book storytelling between like these, you know, big lumbering monster stories and the the slick, shiny, you know, golden maroon hero, right? Is that... Yeah, kind of. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about Marvel and the way that they were able to compete with DC, because if you remember from the origin episode, nobody did that. Right, right. Uh, One of the ways that they competed was just by doing something that was almost completely different. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this idea of your superheroes not having it all together and instead being scary monsters or outsiders of some kind, you know. Uh, got baked in. And so you get that a lot in the early Marvel stuff. We'll talk more about Captain America, but he actually existed before Marvel Comics. He owned, did. But owned by the same company. And he does not have that origin. Ooh. Wonder why, right? Like he's, yeah. you know, uh, a scrawny kid make good, not terrifying 
ubermensch monster, you know, or something. (laughs) But that's so interesting. That's one of the things that I really like about what Marvel does is that they really do make it grimy. They take that sheen off of their of their heroes. And I, I like that a lot. That's part of why Marvel, I think, appeals to me so much more. It definitely makes for really sort of crunchy or sticky story reasons mm-hmm. for them to be doing the superhero thing at the beginning. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the idea that Tony Stark would always have to wear the breastplate. It was a whole breastplate that kept him alive, not just not a, just the little a single arc thing reactor, in his jacket. Right. Mm-hmm. So he would have to wear that like under his clothes and he couldn't let someone get too close to him or not just because of secret identity reasons, but because they would be like, my God, this man, this monster. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's all baked into the early comic book stuff. It Uh would be a while, not a ton of time, but it would be a while before you got like a super sexy, sleek red and gold Uh kind of thing because they were still toying with that idea of Iron Man as monster right Mm -hmm. but even when they're toying with that he also becomes a founding member of the avengers and appears in hundreds of comic books teams and solo titles between 1963 and now he also appeared in some truly terrible cartoons Mm -hmm. both in the 60s and in the 90s they are different in terrible ways but they are equally awful okay (laughs) well good to know So 30 years between cartoons and almost no lessons were learned. They're pretty equally terrible. But the theme song from the 60s cartoon is fantastic. And you should all hear it now. Tony Stark makes you feel he's a cool exec with a heart of steel. And Iron Man all jets a place. But for the movie, we cannot focus only on the origin. We also have to talk about the 2005 series Extremis, written by Warren Ellis. This is also a massive influence on the movies, at least as a trilogy, if not this one specifically. So Extremis does work as kind of a soft reboot for Iron Man. It moves the origin story from Vietnam into the Gulf War, Mm -hmm. and it also makes explicit some themes like transhumanism and progressive technological advancement. These are Ellis's favorite axes to grind in stories. Mm -hmm. So he made that really a front and center part of his Iron Man work. Extremis as a concept will kind of sort of factor into the third Iron Man movie, but the version of Tony Stark from those comics is... Totally the movie version, like even with weird decisions about facial hair. (laughs) So down to the facial hair, this is Warren Ellis's Iron Man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. He's a little, I would say Warren Ellis is a little more tortured, but we do eventually get that in, you know, the second, second and third acts here. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. We torture him enough. (laughs) I'm also going to be honest. I don't find the Extremis series to be very good, honestly. It's one of those comics that does the job of redefining a character going forward more than it does of telling a compelling story in its own right. This is the thing that Mm -hmm. happens with you have to update these characters every now and then because we haven't had a war in Vietnam. He'd be ancient, you know, if he Mm -hmm. were 40 in, in making transistor super speed rocket skates right in (laughs) Vietnam. That's a really specific example for a reason. But um, (laughs) I also think that Ellis was just kind of more interested with the idea of Iron Man than he was with the character. And it kind of comes through. I don't I don't find it fantastic. Okay, All right. So I don't I will periodically, especially to you, Lonnie, recommend comics that are worth reading that make sense with the movie. But that is not one of them. 
So okay, good you know. to know. Good to know because my time is limited. But uh, you know, I want to I want to check this stuff out. <laughs> anybody who disagrees can just at me. We'll talk about right. it. It'll be fun. <laughs> So we'll have a chance to talk about Pepper and Rhodey and some other characters more in the next movie. So let's talk about Obadiah Stane for a minute. Okay. He did become the Ironmonger in the comics in 1982 in Iron Man number 163. And then he died by Uh committing suicide in 1985 in Iron Man number 200. In the comics, he is not Tony's confidant and associate. He is the head of a rival weapons manufacturer, Stane International. I will say, as a boon to the film, making Tony's substitute father figure also his betrayer and eventual villain definitely ups the emotional ante in a lay that takes less than 40 or 50 issues of comics. Yeah. yeah no, I, mean, I think that's fantastic. I, I like that about it. Those are great books. And those that's actually a really interesting time in Iron Man history. You get uh-huh. the uh, the devil in a bottle stuff where he's fighting his alcoholism is mixed into oh, that. Yeah. Those are mm-hmm. good books. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to do, you know... Uh, four or five years of comic books down to one movie. Let's make it a little more immediate substitute father figure. Yeah, no, that's a really, really great choice. And what's so funny is that, you know, you said he was the ironmonger. And I remember in this um, in this movie, it stood out to me when he says we're ironmongers, right? Because I'm like, well, that's such a weird phrase for somebody to use. you know. But it now I get it was a call out accurate. The... It yeah, is historically yeah. accurate, but it's also... Sure. Yeah, that was that was a little Easter egg for nerds. It jumped out at me. It felt a little Easter eggy, you know, and I didn't. Of course, I didn't have the context for it because I don't know the comics as well. But I found that to be interesting. And we'll plant a flag in this right now in that Mm -hmm. this is a thing I'm going to come back to a lot where the MCU plays footsie with its supervillains, but Mm -hmm. never really commits and kisses them full on the mouth, except for one (laughs) very standout example. Uh, which okay. we will talk more about in future films. But I am looking forward to that. Yeah, it's just we don't get here. We are, you know, years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe experiment, and there just aren't any recurring villains except for that one standout. And mm-hmm. so they don't need cool names like Ironmonger because we're never going to see him again. Right. Uh, so right. we throw out the Easter egg. We cruise on past it and, you know, move on until we get better villains. Uh-huh. We're all still waiting in the year of our Lord 2017. <laughs> Just waiting for more of those really great villains. Just waiting. All right. Well, that's our comic history. Let's talk a little bit about the production of this incredible thing. Um, in 2005, Marvel Studios announced that they would produce an Iron Man story because he was their only remaining hero that hadn't been translated into live action yet. He'd had those cartoon, you know, uh, cartoons in the 60s and the 90s, but they hadn't done live action with Iron Man yet. And they wanted to kind of launch this this you know which which what would become the marvel cinematic universe you know with something big and live action that they had done before so according to the producers more than 30 screenwriters turned them down <laughs> most of them saying that they didn't want to work on such an obscure and misunderstood character um apparently most people thought that iron man was a robot which i guess makes sense i think i kind of blame black sabbath because that yeah. song is confusing okay <laughs> I don't know. Everybody thought it was a robot. Nobody wanted to work on Iron Man. Everybody thought it was a loser. But they finally got some writers on it. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that I talk about a lot with um, with writing in general is that when you see a movie, like the fewer number of writers that they have on, you know, a roster, the better off you are. Um, the writing credits for Iron Man, we have eight. 
All right. But actually, it's not that bad. All right. First of all, four of them are from the people who created the characters back in the comic book. So they get a writing credit on this, but they were not involved necessarily in the movie. We have Stan Lee, Don Heck, Larry Lieber and Jack Kirby, who are all getting writing credits on that. So that's four people who are on the writing roster, but don't count as far as as my you know the greater the number of writers the worse the movie you know no that's fair Um, it's like the earliest first draft ever 1963 for the 2008 movie yeah exactly they're just they're just the source material the providers of the source material and that's totally fine so we have actually four more writers then on this movie um but they also have a, a mitigating factor and this is that there are two writing teams and a writing team counts as one writer because they share a vision they work together it's not like somebody writes a a draft and then it goes to somebody entirely different who goes through and works through the draft which is what happens when when a, a good film goes bad like that's that's what tears <laughs> it apart because you need in order to be able to really tell a good story you need a focused vision and whenever a new writer you know gets a script and they have to revise it they're bringing their own vision to it and kind of muddling everything up it, it makes it really messy it makes it really flat um, it usually ends up just just as it's just a bad thing the more writers there are on a project the worse it is so we have two writing teams and that's okay it's not ideal but it's okay we have mark fergus and hawk otsby which is a a name that i just want to say all day long every day hawk otsby why Um, is he not a hero in a marvel movie honestly hawk otsby that's fantastic that that is completely a superhero name or maybe a villain name but it's a cool name whatever um it could be a great villain, right? As a writing pair, Fergus and Otsby have done a number of films together. Iron Man is probably the most notable. They're currently uh, showrunner creators on a sci-fi series, The Expanse. Um, but aside from Iron Man, there hasn't been a whole lot going on for them. They've just kind of, you know, have, have done that thing. Then I think the second team is Art Markham and Matt Holloway. And as a team, Markham and Holloway have done a handful of projects, including some Transformers movies and an upcoming Highlander film, you know, which I presume is a thing now because of the great success of Outlander because everybody wants all this Scottish stuff. So, um, so Wow, that's not exactly a huge vote in their favor. Some Transformer movies and a reboot of a movie that I remember better because I saw it when I was in eighth grade. Right. That's not right. great. It's not great. Yeah. No, it's, 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 you know, it's, but I mean, they're, they're working, they worked on Iron Man. But the thing is, though, that even though we had all of these writers on the film, it has been like, you know, well known that a lot of the film was just improvised because despite having so many writers, they didn't actually have a script. They had like bits and pieces and like, I think a basic story structure, but a lot of it they didn't have a script for. So they just like winged it throughout the whole thing. I find that fascinating. I have worked on a couple of tiny indie production movies and I cannot imagine. And the movie this expensive, just winging it, considering how tightly we were working. I I just, yeah, that's mind blowing to me. It's, it's insane when you think about it they actually had a lot of these scenes that they filmed with multiple cameras so that they could catch the improvisation and they would be able to like edit it together well and actually some of these scenes you can tell they're improvising like the scene with um with robert downey jr and um and roadie um played by terrence howard mm-hmm. um where they're in the I'm plane i told you i'm not mad i'm i'm indifferent okay I said I was sorry. Good morning, no, Mr. I said I was sorry. I, mean, I'm not I, mad. I told him I was sorry, but he I'm just indifferent right now. 
You don't respect yourself, so I know you don't respect me. I respect you. I'm just your babysitter, and so, you know, when you need your diaper change, thank you. Let me know, and I'll get you a bottle, okay? Right, before the uh, (laughs) flight attendants become strippers and whatever fever dream that's about. But um, Well, we'll get to that. Exactly. We will will certainly get to that. Um, But during that, they're talking over each other. They're just kind of throwing things back and forth at each other, and it's really great. There's a there's a scene too with um with Pepper and Tony later on um after the dance where where he takes her up on the roof it was totally not harmless by the way we're dancing everybody who I work with no you know why I think you lost objectivity I think they just people just just danced no it was not just the dance you don't understand because you're you and everybody knows exactly who you are and how you are with girls and and all of that which is completely fine and they you can tell that's completely improvised they're just throwing this stuff back at each other they're talking over each other it's it's a neat element of the aesthetic and everybody's playing off of each other and it's kind of cool but that's because a lot of this stuff wasn't scripted i think a lot of this stuff was just made up in the moment and you can kind of feel it like when all of a sudden our flight attendants are strippers like that feels like one (laughs) of those things that somebody on the set was like hey wouldn't that be cute you know what would tony Uh, stark do he would definitely have flight attendant strippers he definitely, definitely would. Um, but I thought that was a fascinating thing, considering how big this movie was and also how, how good it was, despite the fact that we had so many writers on it who apparently could not get a finalized script done. And then the actors had to improvise a lot of it. Uh, the director was John Favreau, um, who is probably best known as an actor. He played Mike in Swingers, which he also wrote, which was a huge early success for him in like the early 90s. Great and movie, he also too, played, I think. It was a great movie. I know it was really good. And Monica's very rich boyfriend, Pete Becker in season three of Friends. <laughs> so sure. I always remember him from that. No, I remember Friends, man. I was really, I remember Oh no, him from I Friends remember. Mostly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he was, he was very cute. As a director, he did Iron Man and Iron Man 2. He also directed the Christmas movie Elf, which I have always enjoyed. Um, and uh, Cowboys and Aliens and the Jungle Book. So he's done a lot of work. And his producer and writer credits are so, there are so many. There's just too many to name them all. Um, but basically what it comes down to is Favreau is serious business, which he would have to be in order to pull this production off with a half-written script and actors who are just improvising, you know, half of their scenes. It's absolutely insane. And apparently the uh, the scene at the press conference, um, when when uh, Tony just sits down and has a hamburger while all these people are trying to ask I like that him bit. Questions. I really like it's that so bit. It's so fantastic. I love that. And he apparently improvised that. Robert Downey Jr. was like, no, this guy is exhausted. He's going to sit down. Uh, hey, would it be all right if everyone sat down? Why don't you just sit down? That way you can see me and I can... A little less formal than... And that whole thing, you know, he improvised uh, his speech while presenting the Jericho weapon right before he got um, it was it was after we saw him get blown up when we went back in time. And then we, you know, ran those 36 hours right up until until when he got blown up again. Um, but the, that speech where the bombs go off behind him, like he improvised that whole thing. They say the best weapon is one you never have to fire. I respectfully disagree. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. That's how dad did it. That's how America does it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. It's spectacular. Yeah. I I believe it because it's so, it's not, it's a little weird as a Tony Stark 
sales thing until you realize he's selling a thing, right? So he's right. saying the thing to the people that they would want to hear, not necessarily what he would actually say. It's great. I really like that bit a lot. I love that too. And I think that, you know, it's crazy that some of the best stuff from this is stuff that he just apparently, I mean, according to, you know, to the stories, apparently just made up on the spot. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I have been kind of a Downey fan, mostly because of Only You. Uh, Oh, yeah. I I like that rom-com and like maybe two others, you know, but I like that one. And part of it is because he's really funny and charming in it. Like, I actually believe that he could just in a moment kind of charm this woman and he brings that forward into with a little more swagger for Tony Stark. It's good stuff. Yeah, no, it is. It's really fantastic. All right. So here we are. We've got this this movie to talk about. Where do we want to start? Well, I'd like to jokingly say let's start at the beginning because we still have two different ways that we could mean that. Right, exactly. (laughs) Because this is an origin story film Mm -hmm. that has a fractured timeline. So there's two different starts we could start at. Uh, Absolutely. What, yeah, what do well, you we like? Open with that, <laughs> we open with that fractured tease. You know, we've got him in Afghanistan. We've got him talking, you know, flirting with the woman who's driving the, the van that they're in. Um, and then, you know, we see him, you know, get all blown up and everything's all over the place and it's all scary and there's blood coming out of his chest. And then we cut to 36 hours earlier. And I'm going to tell you, everybody who's listened to me talk about stories at all knows that I hate a fractured tease. And that's what a fractured tease is a fractured tease is when you take a moment that's very exciting from later in the story and you put it right up front because you don't have enough confidence in the story that you're telling to be interesting enough without fracturing that timeline so we have that which happens you know in the middle of what is essentially his origin story and then we spend the next i don't know 15 minutes establishing that yes He's a playboy philanderer. He's completely irresponsible. He shows up three hours late for the um, plane. He's got strippers on the like the whole thing. Like we just go through this whole thing of like 15 minutes of establishing what kind of guy Tony Stark is, you know, and then we get back into him in crisis. And for me, I feel like structurally, I think that that's a bad move. I don't particularly care for it. I don't need that much establishing of Tony Stark as, you know, as as this this playboy guy his his argument with the um with the reporter from Vanity Fair who went to Brown so we know that she's nice and smart because she argues with him but then of course she's reduced down to nothing but the trash that uh, Pepper Potts has to take out the next day after all these years Tony still has you picking up the dry cleaning I do anything and everything that Mr. Sark requires including occasionally taking out the trash she the does. Of women in this movie is is a little bit disturbing. It's not great. It's not a good it's look. Not it's mm-hmm. not a good look. And she does come back and get hers a little bit. Uh, she yeah. kind of moves us hard into uh, you know another act later yeah. with a revelation. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like yeah. I mean, I mean, it feels like there are three or four vignettes. Of Tony Mm -hmm. Stark being a douche, and we could have just done two of them and not had to jump around in time. Right. Um, We don't have to do that many. I mean, you see who he is, you know, when the explosion happens, when he's, you know, when he does the Jericho 
um, you know, presentation. That, I think, is a very powerful Tony Stark moment. And we see how arrogant he is, but we also see how incredibly charismatic he is, how smart he is, how good he is at what he does. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that what you could have done is open with the Jericho demonstration, move into like, you know, instead of having him get in a van or get in the Humvee and get blown up right that minute, you know, have him, you know, ogling women and being a playboy or whatever that night, hanging out with Rhodey or whatever. And then the next day, have him get blown up. And you can do that in five minutes. You've established everything. The only thing you don't do is get Pepper Potts in there. But honestly, Pepper Potts is in there only for the girl on girl misogyny. And you know what? I could have lived without that. Yeah. The comic book nerd in me that loves the bromance of Tony and Rhodey wants Mm -hmm. Rhodey to be in there from Mm -hmm. jump, but it's not necessary. He's not super important to this movie. Yeah. Um, And I kind of feel similarly, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think some of Vegas is good. Like the fact that Mm -hmm. Tony will cut the knees out from under a guy that is ostensibly one of his best friends tells me a lot about that guy. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I don't want to be sympathetic for him when he's getting shot and kidnapped or not as sympathetic. Well, if we could have him being that guy in Afghanistan, you hanging out with Rhodey, partying that night, whatever. You got five minutes. You can do that. Boom, boom, boom. You can establish what you do and tell your story walking, you know. Um, And also we would have a chance maybe to have some sense of what the overall antagonism is, because we have this this opening origin story, right? This act one is this transformation how Tony Stark went from being this wild playboy you know into how did he become Iron Man how did he become this guy right you know and I think that we could um, we could do that so much more efficiently you know and and tie it into the rest of the movie because right now it feels like we open up this first story and the first story is he gets you know blown up he's held hostage he's forced to make this weapon he uses it to make an iron man suit and he escapes right but once he escapes we're like okay well you're out of the hands of the antagonist as we discover much much later in the film those guys were specifically there to put a hit on tony and then only once they realized who he was did they decide not to kill him and hold him for greater ransom um and so now, you know, if we had known in the beginning when they made that video, if we had just gotten a little bit of that subtitling, we don't have to know who the bad guy is yet. You don't have to give that away. Just that there is somebody that they are, you know, sending a video to who put a hit out on Tony and that we know that when he escapes, that person is still out there who wants to kill him. And I think that that would allow us to like bring some tension, you know, from Afghanistan, from that whole experience to ride it into, you know, this new space. Because once he gets back to America, it feels like we're sort of restarting the story. Did you pick up on that? Did that feel that way to you? Yeah, definitely. Not not necessarily in a bad way because Mm -hmm. we know or at least I expected a little bit of a stutter step there because we were going to have this transition period between not not even having the idea of the armor to having the idea of the armor and then from Mm -hmm. there how are we going to use it as Iron Man so I I expected a little bit of a stutter step but it does it's all really enjoyable and they basically get away with it on charm but it is probably Mm -hmm. half again as long as it needs to be. I think so. And I mean, I just I it's it's really great. I enjoy it. It's fun. I love this movie and I have a good time with it. But when I look at it, I just think, oh, some tweaks, you know, a couple of tweaks. And that could have been a lot tighter. Imagine if our first introduction to Pepper is kind of a tearful receiving him on the tarmac. 
Right. But then the but then the next real character beat we get from her is when he calls her down to help him switch out arc reactors, right? Yes. So imagine if our first introduction to her is instead of her being catty, and mm-hmm. I guess probably jealous. I don't I guess we're love supposed it. to have that, but it is really nasty. Yes. We that just would have been a a much more enjoyable introduction to Pepper. You know, much more emotional, like matter yeah. to them. Yeah, and we would have gotten there a little bit. I don't want to say faster, because it's not like this is a super long movie, but more mm-hmm. efficiently. Yeah, I think so. One of the things that I thought was really funny was how both Rhodey and Pepper responded to Tony the first time they see him after this event. Rhodey finds him, you know, Mm -hmm. in the middle of the desert. You know, and it's just so, you know, um, how was the fun V? You know, like, I mean, that seems so. And then they have this lovely hug between him and Robert Downey Jr., which I think expresses so much more. But it's so like, um, I don't know, so lightly delivered for such what would be an intense emotional moment. And then when she sees him, he comes off, you know, on the tarmac after getting off the plane. Your eyes are red. A few tears for your long lost boss. Tears of joy. I hate job hunting. But there's no sense of any real emotion with her. She's just right in that moment with him. I would have liked to have seen, even if it's not in the dialogue, a little bit more emotion there, a little bit something giving us a sense of how deep that relationship is. Because it isn't until she's changing out his arc reactor that you see what they are to each other. Yes. And I really want to see that as early as possible. Yeah. Because, and please, please interject and tell me what you think. But I have to tell you, the Pepper Tony romance is kind of the worst. It's not great. It's it's not built that well. There are moments where it's really good. Oh, they're adorable together off and on. Yeah. But overall, I think that, you know, here, the best thing, the best moment is when he says, I don't have anyone but you. You okay? <laughs> don't ever, 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 ever ask me to do anything like that ever again. I, I don't have anyone but you. Yes. Um, first of all, the way that they work together in that moment is really nice. You know, I like the way that they work together. And of course, as I've always said a million times, the best way to build a romance is through the work. Whatever it is that they do together, they do it well. That builds a really great romance. But this sense that neither one of them has anybody else, this mm-hmm. sense that she is completely absorbed in her work as his assistant. Although, I don't know, referring to her as an assistant always feels really dismissive because it seems to me like she's actually the one running everything while he is off gathering, you know, Vanity Fair reporters at parties, you know? Um, Their relationship is terrible, Lonnie. That's what I'm saying. It's really dysfunctional (laughs) and I kind of hate it. But I kind of hate it because I love Pepper. I love well, I, I love Pepper. I love Gwyneth Paltrow's Pepper. I feel like we don't develop her enough as a person. Like she feels like a Tony Stark appendage. Like she is the pretty woman who runs everything in the background, you know, as opposed to like really developing her personally. We know nothing about her aside from the fact that she is always there trying to clean up after Tony. So that doesn't give you a sense of who she is and what is important to her aside from him. You know? and, it, and it doesn't get better the more we get to know her in other movies, right? Yeah. Because yeah. she, we see in this movie how much she's running things or telling Tony how to run things. And that's really mm-hmm. cool for us to see. But when she actually becomes in charge of the company and stuff like that, it's like, I have to ask, why are you interested in him at all, Pepper? 
Right. You you're you could do better than Tony Stark. Right. I mean, especially at the beginning of the movie when he's terrible. Right. And what is it that she loves about him? Like, I mean, we do see a lot of his charm and a lot of his intelligence, but I want to see what is it? It feels like one of these things that happens a lot with the romances, which is I'm hot, you're hot, let's be hot together. Right. You know, you've got Gwyneth Paltrow, you've got Robert Downey Jr. All right. That's great. That's a great pairing, you know, um, and they do a lot. The actors do a lot to sell it. But the the character and the and the romance as written as, you know, on the page is really flat because we don't really develop Pepper. She's more like this cardboard stand in of the very capable woman, you know, as opposed to a real, you know, character with strengths, weaknesses and vulnerabilities. You know, we don't really get a strong sense of who she is. We we spend a lot of time understanding Tony, but we don't really understand Pepper. She's just the hot girl. I, I would have if we could have streamlined that opening, mm -hmm. I would have loved for Pepper to be the moral compass who was asking some of these yeah. merchant of death questions. Yeah. And she's the one who stumbles on a report that mm -hmm. Obadiah had been hiding before we know he's the full blown villain, but she's the one who brings Tony, you know, the file and is like, did you know that, that these weapons were being fantastic. used right now? That would have been Let fantastic. her be his moral compass, right? right? That would be great. Yeah. And not for nothing. I would like to hear you chime in on this, but I gotta, I gotta tell you, Tony, the, employer of Pepper Potts hitting on her, I feel like has not aged well into 2017. No, no, absolutely. It wasn't aging well in 2008. Exactly. <laughs> like it was yeah. not great in 2008. And now it's just like, oh, it's gross. It's so gross. And the fact that she kind of talks her way through it mm -hmm. at the party, mm -hmm. I'm just like, Oh, Pepper, I need to know more about you. I need to know if right. I need to worry for Pepper. Right. <laughs> no, there needs to be. And that's the thing. Like, you know, people fall in love at work all the time. That happens, right? You know, but when you've got somebody who has that much power, when there's such a power differential between him and her, when she is not his equal, you know, she's not, she's his assistant. I mean, they actually, I think, call her his assistant, yes, you know, I mean, definitely. that's what she is. You know, if she was somebody who worked there, who was on a level with him, if she was a vice president of the company, you know, who had to work with him and had to deal with him, you know, and that I could have seen, you know, leveling out that, that power space. But right now Be he has all the power she has none hitting on her is not appropriate i think there's also an emotional power differential through at least half of the movie oh, where sure. she is into him and he is not into her mm -hmm. I, I mean i think that he does not see her until he starts to have his face turn not really yeah. i think pepper is furniture to tony in the way that she kind of is for us in the script. Not, yeah. you know, uh, she's there to do her job and he doesn't have to think about her doing her job. It just happens. He mm -hmm. values her advice. Right. He knows that she, that he could not run his life without Pepper, but he does not see her romantically. I honestly think at all until he starts to kind of have his eyes opened to, you know, a moral universe. Right. Um, but we don't arc that. Like, what is it about that face turn that makes him suddenly see Pepper differently? It almost seems like she gets to that party in the dress and he sees her back and he's like, hey, that's a hot girl. And then I never noticed when... she had shoulder blades before. Right, My exactly, God. Exactly. Yeah, and weird. it feels like it's in that moment that he's suddenly like, well, hey, Pepper, you know, um, as opposed to it being 
something that she does or something that she says or something that resonates with him. Like, you're right. If she had been throughout the whole thing, like, you know, these weapons, I realize I work at this company. These weapons are bothering me. I have concerns about this, you know, and that when he comes back and he has those same concerns that he suddenly sees everything she's been saying all along and they bond over something about who they are as people, you know, but here it's just like, hey, you're beautiful and you're wearing a hot dress. Okay, that's it. Now we're in love. I mean, honestly, that's probably enough for Tony Stark, but it's not enough for me. No, for Tony Stark. but you want you know Tony what? It's Stark not to enough be for me for now. Pepper. I that's want and I want to, Pepper yeah. to be better now. I need I Pepper do. to be taken care of. I do. I or want better Pepper yet, to be I need Pepper too. to take care of herself. I don't want her to fall for his charm because he's charming. I want her to love him because of the man he is underneath that she knows who that man is and that she has seen that man before, even before the face turn. Like, that's what I want, that there's a deep emotional bond between these people, that she knows something about him that nobody else knows and that even he doesn't know until this happens to him. And that is missing. Imagine, imagine if you had a scene where Tony is making humanitarian decisions Uh that he makes sure get attributed to Pepper in the same way that Pepper is making business decisions that they have to make sure is attributed to Tony. Right. Right. Yeah. Something. Oh, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm just spitballing, that. but that would have been something great. to where together he actually has some kind of moral compass. And so that when we do get a full on face turn where yeah. he's actually like, well, we're not selling weapons anymore to anybody. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it, that, yeah, it just, I want, Gwyneth Paltrow sells a competent and amazing pepper pots so well that I'm sort of annoyed that it's not, more in the script <laughs> that we didn't give her more yeah i really i think that she does a great job with this character and the two of them together are able to sell something that isn't there on the page you know yes. they they yes. make it work as well as you possibly can given the dearth of actual material in the script to make that work um but yeah it's it's a disappointment because it's It's so good. And if you had given, I mean, this is what these actors are able to do with really nothing. Imagine what they would have done if you'd given them some emotional anchors to work with. Well, you know, they hired some guys that wrote Transformers. So this is very true. This is very true. I know. Listen, if you love Transformers, God bless you. God (laughs) bless you. I have also watched and enjoyed Transformers movies. But they're not exactly, you know, ripe with emotional meaning. They're not deep on telling these emotional stories. And there is an emotional side to this story. I mean, when we see this transformation in Tony Stark, the guy that he is after he comes back from Afghanistan, I mean, he is wrecked in that um, press conference when he sits down. He is wrecked. He is just exhausted and he's been terrified and he's traumatized. And he sits down and he starts talking just off the cuff about how they're not going to make weapons anymore. And he's making this decision, you know, and it's this wild, vulnerable moment. I never got to say goodbye to my father. There's questions that I would ask him. I would ask him how he felt about what this company did. If he was conflicted, if he ever had doubts. Or maybe he was every inch the man we all remember from the newsreels. I saw young Americans killed by the very weapons I created to defend them and protect them. And I saw that I had become part of a system that is comfortable with zero accountability. And then it leads into him putting himself back together by putting Iron Man together. Yeah. 
But even then, he makes a very Tony Stark decision of, I'm just going to fly over there and blow stuff up. Right. (laughs) And having Pepper come in and discover the thing. And again, if she gets to be that moral center, she gets to go, okay, blowing up stuff is a nice start. Right. (laughs) But what do you do tomorrow? You Mm -hmm. know? um, Yeah, it's powerful. It could be be really great. It could have been. It was. It's actually very good. And I think that bothers me that it could have been really great. That's what, yeah, that's what makes me nuts is that it's this good with, you know, all these writers working on it who apparently even despite the fact that we had two teams of of writers working on this, we could not get a script together. We've got actors who are improvising a great deal of what's, you know, happening here. And it's still a great, great movie. There's still fantastic storytelling going on here. There's still great character work going on here. Um, even So you think about like, if they had just not pulled it directly out of their ass, how much better could this have been? <laughs> I, I think a lot of the same thoughts about Rhodey, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, I really like their friendship mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, there are some weird moments, like you mentioned, where we got to get a joke in before yeah. our heartfelt hug. It, it's But overall... They play off of each other really well in that same way. I guess it just seems less egregious to me because they don't wind up smooching. Right, right. I mean, I mean, it could be better, but it's still pretty good. And dudes are dudes, like hold each other at arm's length, you know, kind of thing. I get it. Yeah. So I guess it feels less egregious than the love story. But it's really, it's a lot of the same things could be said about the the roadie and Tony bromance, as we say about the Tony and Pepper romance. Yeah, no, I absolutely think so. Because it's the same basic problem with building these relationships. I think that, I mean, there's this nice moment, you know, when they're on the plane, they're going out to Afghanistan. Hey, Kita Pasaki, will you? Thanks no, for reminding me. I'm not me. talking, we're Why not drinking, we're working right now. You, you are, sashimi you are constitutionally sake. incapable of being responsible. It would be irresponsible not to drink. I'm just talking about a nightcap. Hot sake? Yes, two, please. No, just, I'm not drinking. I don't want any. That's what I'm talking about when I get up in the morning. And then, of course, we do a crash cut to uh, to them as the strippers are pulling the pole up, you know, um, where yeah. he's drunk and he's, you know, talking to Tony and stuff. And so that's kind of a sweet. It shows their friendship. It shows their relationship. We do have some of those moments with uh, with Tony and Rhodey that are really nice and that kind of establish them. But but yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like these these relationships require that kind of emotional anchor that you understand who these people are, who they are together, who they are separately, and why they love each other, you know? And I mean, Rhodey and Tony love each other, and Tony and Definitely. Pepper love each other. And why is that love there? And then, you know, we've got the relationship between Tony and, and Obadiah, you know, which is this, this you know, substitute father, you know, kind of figure, which I think was a brilliant move for them to do that, as we discussed earlier. Um, but you see them together, but you don't get a sense of a deep like personal connection between them that you know i want to see those emotional lines drawn just you know a little more strongly i think if you could draw the pepper and roadie lines more strongly the a little bit of dead zone between tony and obadiah would actually work even better all right right even before we know he's the villain we understand that there is some of a space between them right when Tony clearly is having an existential crisis, mm-hmm. Obadiah is like, but the money, mm-hmm. you know, or the stock, or you're going to have to talk to me about this arc reactor that I'm not even supposed to know about. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, which, again, if if you if you do this a little differently, could have been a little clue to the audience that he was the bad guy because oh, sure. he knew a little more about that escape. I mean, there's just anyway, you know, uh, a coldness between Obadiah and Tony 
or a coldness from Tony to Obadiah because mm-hmm. he's got daddy issues. Yes. Um, yeah, just it works pretty well anyway. Mm-hmm. But if I have stronger lines with the people that Tony loves, it works even better. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I liked about Obadiah was that betrayal. You know, was that turn? Who do you think ordered the injunction? You know, like yeah. those moments. And oh, my God, Jeff Bridges. Wow. He is charming. He is cold. <laughs> I mean, he does an amazing job with that. Let's take a picture. Come on. Picture time. Hey, who do you think locked you out? I was the one who filed the injunction against you. It's the only way I can protect you. And as much as I question some of his life decisions as the movie goes on, right. he, he also kind of sells... The uh, I've never really been into this kind of thing, but I, you know, now that I'm in the suit, it's great. Blow stuff up. Boom, boom, boom. Like, like the the choice that got him to there, Mm -hmm. I am somewhat confused by. But in that moment, I'm like, yeah, that would be pretty fun. Yeah. You've you've spent all these years making weapons and never got to fire one. And now you're just like, I'm a do. I mean, you know, yeah, it's uh, he. Jeff Bridges kills it. Yeah, no, he's fantastic in this role. And he's so and I like because he has that charm. You know, similar to the way that Tony does. Like, he has that mm-hmm. very superficial charm, and he's just smiling, and he's handling the situation, and he's at the party, and he's doing the thing. And then the coldness of, who do you think called for the injunction? As he's smiling so for good. the cameras. Like, I love that turn and that sense of betrayal, you know? Um, and I really, and again, like, when we get there, it just makes me think so much more how I would have wanted to have that video that we see later you know, mm-hmm. which is translated when Pepper breaks into Obadiah's office. You did not tell us that the target you paid us to kill was the great Tony Stark. As you can see, Obadiah Stain, your deception and lies will cost you dearly. The price to kill Tony Stark has just gone up. Um, I thought that was fantastic, but uh, God, it would have been wonderful when we're seeing that video being shot if we had just had that hint. You know, if we had had that translation, if we had had something there that we could have understood, that mm-hmm. somebody had put a hit out on Tony. And then when we come back, we're trying to figure out who that is. And that tension rides from the first part into the second part as we see him, you know, going through this whole transformation as he's building, you know, this suit, right? And this suit of armor. He comes back. He's been traumatized. He's got this thing in his chest that's keeping him alive from the shrapnel that's going to run through his organs if if this thing breaks down, you know. And then he's building this suit of armor because he's so vulnerable suddenly. And he's creating this outer shell that will make him invulnerable, you know. I mean, when he goes to Gomera and, and, you know, shoots everything up and and saves this town, you know, and then comes back and there are bullet holes. When Pepper comes in, she says, are those bullet holes, you know? Yes, yes. I mean, he's got and, and legitimately yeah. freaked out. Like that's the thing that freaks her out too. Right. It's it's right. not but, I mean, weird technology. It's are those bullet holes? And again, that's Gwyneth Paltrow selling this thing that yeah. may or may not have been on the page. Right, yeah. exactly. No, she did a fantastic job with that. But you know, here he is trying so hard to be invulnerable because he has been so vulnerable and so traumatized, building this iron suit that even the bullets can't get through. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I love seeing that. And then he's and then he's ultimately incredibly vulnerable because one of the people he trusts most, you know, is betraying him. And then when when Obadiah comes in with the with the zapper that paralyzes him. Yeah, Tony. When I uh, ordered the hit on you, 
I worried that I was killing the golden goose. But you see, it was just fate that you survived that. You had one last golden egg to give. And there is Tony, paralyzed, his arc reactor being pulled from his chest, as vulnerable, both physically and emotionally, as he could possibly be after this whole movie, after everything in this transformation of his character has been about finding a way to be invulnerable, putting that outer shell on, and then everything is stripped away. I think it, I thought it was just a genius, genius moment in this movie. I no, I agree. The 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 stain turn, yeah. the Obadiah turn is huge, and it has two levels, which is great. Mm-hmm. I'm going to screw you over in the business, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to turn around and actually kill you, <laughs> um, so that I can have this technology that you won't share. And he also brings up a lot of the questions that have kind of been background questions up till then about like military industrial complexes Mm -hmm. when he says things like you think just because you made the idea you get to own it it's just for you yeah there's there's a lot of emotional and philosophical weight carried in that turn so good Mm -hmm. it's makes me wish we could get a world where obadiah comes back but you know yeah it's you you know like a recur recur that villain let's use the good stuff um, yeah. Let him come back now as an opposing weapons manufacturer. Although that gets done pretty well in Iron Man 2, and we'll talk more about that later. Oh, yeah. No, um, <laughs> so a little talk perhaps about the universe building that they were already doing, knowing that they were going to turn this into a universe if it made any money. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, how much of that did you pull out of your first view? Because the Easter eggs are lost on you. Right. For the most part. Yeah. I mean, for the most part. Yeah. Because a lot of it is stuff that I don't understand. I mean, we have that clip at the end. Right. Because this is the thing they do with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the clip at the end where Tony comes home. There's Nick Fury. He's talking about the Avengers initiative, you know. Um, And uh, and so that's when you get a sense that this is becoming like a broader you know, story space, that there's something extra that we're going to be doing here, you know. Um, But for me, I mean, honestly, the big the big thing is shield, right here, we've got Phil Coulson. And let me just say, I'm a big Agents of shield fan, the TV show. I love it with my whole heart. I love Clark Gregg when I see Phil Coulson and he's baby Phil Coulson. He's so young, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's true. Oh my gosh, it's true. I love him so much. It gives me such joy in my soul to see him there, even though he's just kind of like this background character. He looks like an accountant. You know, he's very, very quiet. He's, you know, talking about what S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, strategic homeland, blah, 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 blah. I don't even know what S.H.I.E.L.D. stands for. It's this whole long thing. I don't either because it's meant like four or five different things. So we're just going to cruise right past it. <laughs> but it's funny when he's talking to Pepper and he's just like, yeah, you know, we're, we're working on it. <laughs> but it's a, uh, but yeah. it's really, I love him. I love that character. I love that we've got this broader universe that we're kind of building, you know, outside of this. And I mean, Iron Man at this point, if it hadn't been a hit, the Marvel Cinematic Universe might not have taken off. 
Oh, I think definitely not. You know, I, I mean, yeah. I think the idea that they could sell a character nobody knew. Right. Mm-hmm. With with a lot of, you know, uh, uh, charm and cleverness really mm-hmm. basically said, OK, so we should probably keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's build this uh, out. But they have those, you know, the seeds of that in this with the, the world building for the broader universe for the Avengers, you know, which was to come a little is- bit later. This is the nice thing about having all of these 40, 50, 60 year old first drafts. Yeah. Right? Right. Because all you have to do is throw out a name. Yeah. Just just so it's there. And even if you're not the one who writes it, the next person that comes along is like, oh, that's right. They said 10 rings. Let's talk about sure. what that means from mm-hmm. the comic book perspective or the whole world, the whole universe that S.H.I.E.L.D. Opens up yeah. for us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you just really have to throw those seeds out and not deal with them because you don't have to worry about running along after them later. Yeah. You've got all these comics. We can go mine these things. Yeah. So the, the Easter eggs are fun, but they're also pretty powerful. Like I say, storytelling seeds, right? Mm-hmm. Just throw them in the dirt. If they grow, great. If they don't, you know, sometimes they'll grow and we'll prematurely kill them. I'm looking at you, Mandarin. We'll talk more about that later. Um <laughs> Little previews as they go along, right? right? Just little. <laughs> but yeah, it's rock rock solid work considering that they didn't know for a fact that this weird little face turn origin story was going to turn into a license to print money. Yeah, that it was going to it was going to be the movie that launched a thousand things. And I mean, really, we have this. I mean, you know, like I talked about this in our origin episode, right? That um, the reason why I want to talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is because it is so vast. It is the the most ambitious thing that I have ever seen that we've got movies and TV shows and all of it coming from this this material this comic book material that has been you know just simmering for 60 years you know while they're building all of this space and all of these stories and all of these you know different kinds of stories within the same shared universe and to me that is it is a fascinating thing to watch especially when you hop from story to story because things mm-hmm. things change the tone is different if you look at captain america and you look at iron man you know, I mean, that's there's totally just completely different stories and and go from and I mean, Captain America, when we get there, that's huge emotional uh, work being done in that one. Um, but there's just so much space within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's so many different kinds of stories. And here, you know, in Iron Man, we're getting just the beginning you know, of that, that kind of like that deeper root structure, you know, it makes me think of that. Mm-hmm. And this is going to sound ridiculous now that I'm actually saying it out loud. But, you know, that huge mushroom that is like one organism, but it looks like a thousand mushrooms all over, the, but it's all connected underneath. And it's just one mushroom. Does that, does that make any sense? Anybody know what I'm talking about? But anyway, um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's in a forest somewhere. It's a big mushroom. Um, but it's just but it all most of it is under the surface. And it's all connected under the surface, but little bits of it come up above the surface. So it looks like a bunch of different mushrooms, but it's not. Um, so that's my my big, you know, metaphorical, you know, analogy for the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's just one big mushroom. <laughs> well, I can't help but at this point, especially in my life, I can't help but be fascinated by shared universes. <laughs> yes. Right. And to see one grow from the weirdest space. I mean, I would never have I would I don't know who I would have said should have started the MCU mm-hmm. if I if I could have had anybody like all right, you've been reading comic books for a long time. Who should set the stage for the rest of the MCU? 
I would not have picked Iron Man. I think the only reason they did was because it was the only one they hadn't yet interpreted in live action and they wanted to start in a fresh space. Yes, that makes total sense, especially since I've seen some of the other people's live action stuff Mm -hmm. and good Lord. (laughs) The last attempt at a Captain America movie before Chris Evans is just. Yeah, is that bad stuff? Hmm. (laughs) I haven't seen it, so I don't know. It's yeah, it's a hell of a thing. We're just going to, you know, it's uh, he rides a motorcycle Uh and his windshield is a clear Captain America shield. Uh And when he stops the motorcycle, he gets off and takes the windshield off. And that's his that's his shield. That's his shield. And it's friggin terrible (laughs) because it was made for like three dollars for TV. And yeah, but I mean, you know, and I saw David Hasselhoff's Nick Fury and it was not good. Okay. Okay. uh, Okay. No, I was not aware that David Hasselhoff (laughs) had done Nick Fury. TV movie made for TV movie. I missed none of these things, Lonnie, because they were all I had. Oh, my God. I love that you have all this knowledge because (laughs) I am so surprised. You bring up stuff and I'm like, I had no idea. Um, Yeah, that's fascinating. But I mean, I can see I can see wanting that that clean slate. I get it. But I mean, I also think about this in terms of. But we're starting a universe, so who you start with sets a tone. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, right. and the unexpectedly cool thing, and we'll, again, this is stuff we'll talk way more about as we look at more movies, but the unexpectedly cool thing is that they get to set the tone two or three different times. Yeah. Because we're going to go back in time mm-hmm. and see what Captain America was like, who actually started the whole thing, you know? Right. And we're going to see mm-hmm. Thor, who... Sort of kind of started the thing, I guess, like 3,000 years ago. It's hard to, con- but you know. Right, if you're talking like in the timeline of the world itself, yeah. The internal fiction timeline, yeah. yeah. It's, you really get to kind of have your cake and eat it too, as you get to start with this like freewheeling, snarky, but still heroic yeah. universe starter, mm-hmm. and then go, but watch this. Yeah. Back in the 40s. But wait, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's very cool. Yeah, it's very no, it cool. is. It's, and, and, it's really cool. And it is tonally. You know, there are so many different perspectives on this universe. I mean, you look at the tone of Guardians of the Galaxy versus the tone of something like Jessica Jones, you know, and like, mm, yeah, the, and the, the gritty urban stories that you've got, you know, happening on Netflix. And then you've got Agent Carter, you know, um, there are so many different spaces within this universe for different tones. And yet, I mean, I don't know about you, but like for me. It does feel cohesive somehow. Well, I'm well versed at not looking too closely at the cracks right? between genres in sure. superhero uh-huh. stories. But yeah, overall, it's de- it definitely holds together if you don't think about it too hard. Right. Like, in fact, a lot of my complaints mm-hmm. about some of these movies are when they ki- they kind of make me mm-hmm. look closely. Yeah. And I'm like, don't make me look at that. That's a problem. Right. But, you, you know, but it doesn't happen terribly often. It just when it does, I, I get it because overall it really does hang together. Mm-hmm. No, it don't make me does. think too hard about it. <laughs> right. But then we've got Phil Coulson, you know, as Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And he shows up in the Thor movie. You know, we'll talk about that in a little bit. I mean, he's S.H.I.E.L.D. becomes and Nick Fury, of course, as you know, the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D. becomes kind of this connective mm-hmm. glue in the whole universe. It sort of holds it all together. In a very weird way. In a way that goes back right to the beginning, mm-hmm. since uh, 
Peggy Carter is a founding member of right. S.H.I.E.L.D. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's it's not the way that I would have done it if I had all the toys to play with. But it turns out being an extremely rich way to have done it. And you don't get that in a lab. You get that by accident. Yeah, so right. It's very cool. <laughs> no, I think it's really great. OK, so is there anything else that we want to talk about with this movie today? I mean, I'd like to talk about Ghostface Killer, but I think nobody but me is going to care about the Wu-Tang Clan. No, so... go for it. Go for it. <laughs> I just want to say, Ghostface Killa, member of the Wu-Tang Clan, rap supergroup out of Staten Island. All of the members of the Wu-Tang Clan have various different identities. And one of his is Tony Starks. And he released an album called Iron Man. Aha. Uh-huh. He does the song that the strippers are dancing to. Oh, really? Yes, that is a Ghostface Killa song. It's called Slept on Tony with Dirt. <laughs> and... <laughs> And he also got a scene in the movie, but it got cut, which blows my mind because it's like you put all this other stuff in. You kept all these other things, but Ghostface can't stick around. Come on. (laughs) But he does. He does get a song on the on on the soundtrack and uh, it's pretty prominently displayed right there. And it's just really cool because those guys are all giant comic book nerds Mm -hmm. and Kung Fu movie nerds. And that stuff like permeates their music in different ways. Mm -hmm. He he is one of the most Ghostface is one of the most obvious when he over and over describes himself as Tony Starks and as Iron Man and that Uh kind of stuff. So yeah, look for that. In your deleted scenes on your DVD or Blu-ray. I love it. I had no idea. This is what I love about working with you, Joshua, is that you have so much knowledge that I have no idea about. So every episode, there's going to be a wonderful surprise. (laughs) I always look forward to that. I wish they could all be Wu-Tang Clan. I wish they could. Whenever the (laughs) Wu-Tang Clan is in it, though, I want you to definitely bring that up. All right. So at the end of the episode, we're going to talk about our favorite parts. Joshua, you go first. What's your favorite part? My favorite part of the movie is kind of a combo of the testing and building of the armor Mm -hmm. and his first suiting up. Yeah. And and it's about 75-25 in favor of the testing and building because... When I saw it in 2008, I will be honest, that was the part that I was like, can we just get to the damn point with (laughs) Iron Man? But it turns into this space where you get to learn so much about Tony's evolving character. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like the parts of him that survive the Ten Rings cave are like his willingness to just try stuff and his inventiveness and, and, um, that sometimes he does things too well. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, all right, I'm just going to start with 10% power. And then he shoots himself into a wall, you know? Yeah. And the next time it's like, let's try it with just 1%. <laughs> I mean, you know, that stuff is great. And and it turns out to be one of my, in, in fact, the favorite part, you know, of the movie is watching him go through those iterations and figure that stuff out. Mm-hmm. And then the 25% being his first suiting up, because I have a lot of really complicated feelings about superheroes specifically changing clothes Mm -hmm. and it literally and figuratively making them into somebody different and hopefully better, but definitely more empowered. Right. And I mean, it, it, it's almost a magical girl transformation for any sailor moon fans out there. (laughs) I mean, it's almost that level of a change scene for him. Mm -hmm. And it's like, he spent all this time building it, building it, building it. Now he puts it on and it's like, well, now I'm me. Yeah. This, this is me. I love that. Love it. No, I think that's fantastic. And honestly, that was one of the things that I was thinking about, too. But for me, I think it comes down to that press conference. There is something about him needing a burger and sitting down 
And just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, being like, we're not making weapons anymore. I'm not doing this shit anymore. Like, there's something about this, this incredible vulnerability for this guy, because it's that vulnerability that makes him move into building the next iteration of the suit, you know, and this obsession with the suit and with covering himself with armor, because he's so incredibly vulnerable in that moment. And I thought it was beautifully expressed. And I know apparently it was it was, you know, improvised by Robert Downey Jr. He's a genius. Uh, the stuff yeah, that he that's came up strong. with. It's fantastic. But it's also like we, there's so much swagger in this movie, you know, there's this, this rockin', you know, back in black ACDC, you know, kind of a soundtrack going on. And there's so much stuff happening. He's so smooth and he's so charming and he's got, he's on top of everything. And then this moment has no swagger. It is just mm-hmm. this like really deeply human moment for him. And it is honestly, for me, like the emotional center of this movie for me, that is the moment when I'm really in it with Tony and I see him trying to figure out he was, he was so secure in who he was before that. Now he doesn't know, Mm -hmm. you know? And then of course, when when we counter that with the end, you know, where he's doing the other press conference, right? So we have this press conference where he he was he was Tony Stark. He knew who he was. He comes back. He has no idea who he is in that moment. He's just winging mm-hmm. it. He has no idea. And then at the end, we have him out there talking about, well, I don't know what you guys are thinking, that I'm some kind of superhero. I, I, I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly, with this uh, laundry list of character defects, all the mistakes I've made, largely public. I am Iron Man. Right? And that's how we end with him stating so confidently his identity. And so a lot of this is just his his discovery of who he is, both with and without the suit. And I like that that press conference, that first moment, he's just such a mess. That anchors me and really engages me in that whole process for him. I agree. I really like that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually kind of had a Hamlet conversation with myself about it where it was like is that very affected like is is he setting them up for the big Uh we're not going to do this thing and then and you know i finally came around to no 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 he's really he's just not sure he's genuinely flailing yeah yeah he doesn't know and in between there we have my favorite part where he becomes who he is so of course at the end he had to tell everybody right no i'm me again i'm me again you guys this is who i am and he stakes his identity you know, but his identity is the suit. I am Iron Man, you know? So, yeah, I mean, when you think about it on that level, it is it is really beautifully constructed. I agree. It's a, superheroes are poetry. You don't have to convince me. <laughs> right, exactly. Preach it to the <laughs> choir there. All right. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We will be back next time with our discussion of... The Incredible Hulk. <laughs> That'll be a thing. Um, if you enjoyed this conversation, then please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts. There's no better way to make sure other people discover the show. Yes, absolutely. That's a huge thing. Please, please, please. If you can take a moment to do that, that'd be so helpful. Both Chipperish and Pulp Diction are entirely supported by listeners like you. And if you want to support us, you can find the links to Apple and both of our Patreon pages in the show notes. Until next time, remember... That's how Dad did it, that's how America does it, and it's worked out pretty well so far. 
Thanos is responsible for most of Iron Man's most memorable villains. Sorry. Let me try that whole thing again, because what's a villain? <laughs> it's like a billion villains. Ooh, yeah. I like that. <laughs> Need to write that down. All right. <clears throat> uh, but so committed to the fight against commies was the Marvel Universe that the Red Menace would supply most of Iron Man's memorable villain. My God. <laughs> Is That's it, all right. Just run at it again. Is it It'll memorable villains? Is that what's okay. memorable villains? All right. Yeah. This time I got That's it. That's okay. I got you it. You got it. You can do it, man.